Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Elona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, this is Elona Thompson, Palate Exposure. I am here with Steve Reynolds. I've been looking forward to sitting down with him for quite some time. He's a renowned vintner, but I know a lot of sides. He's quite multifaceted. He's a vintner at Reynolds Family Winery, of course, and a winemaker. He also is a distiller, which is quite curious. We'll talk about his Penta brand. But first and foremost, he is a father and husband. And we'll start with the personal journey. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your background. Where do you come from? Great. Well, thanks for having me on today. Of course. Um, I think I'll try to just narrow that down into just a quick little few sentences. Very diverse background, you know, born in Oklahoma. My dad was in the electronics industry, so that took us all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think by the time I separated off to college, I'd lived 20 different places. So kind of a mutt, if you will. (laughs) Um, You know, the longest I lived anywhere was um, sixth grade. We moved to Munich, Germany, and I graduated high school from there. So I had a chance to, that's really honestly where I started to get the love for food and wine. Um, You know, before the Food Network and before Bon Appetit magazine here in the United States, there really wasn't the culinary scene that there is in Europe. I mean, it's just inherent there. And, uh, you know, you, you don't rush off to go to try to hit a bar, then a movie, then home, have dinner, then rush out and go to a party. I mean, in Europe, as we both know, your evening is with your family and it's share you know, great food and great wine is part of the whole experience for the family. So Munich, of course, is known Germany in general, but Munich in particular, the Oktoberfest, the oh, yeah. Biennalia, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> many, <laughs> many good and not so good times at the oh, Oktoberfest yeah. growing yes. up. Uh, it's not necessarily known as a mecca of food culture. People typically associate France or Italy with that. But Germany has a very prominent food culture and, and also wine culture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was really it. My father, although being a semiconductor guy, his sort of passion was collecting wines and enjoying wines. And back before there was all these electronic measuring devices or things you could put on your phone or your computer, you know, he had the old-fashioned picture books, you know, where you'd Mm -hmm. peel the sticky paper back and you could put pictures underneath. So he would actually peel labels off of wines and put the labels on and write his little notes in the books. And I was the only boy in the family. So, uh, you know, I drank booze with my dad from a very young age. So that's really where this whole thing for me started. So your palate was forming at an early age is what it sounds like. And somehow almost on the subconscious level. Totally. You were so aware of it. It was on your radar. So how did how did it manifest later on? You know, as honestly, it, it, candidly, where I've landed was probably the last place I would have <laughs> thought. Um, you know, for me and people who've been to wine dinners have heard this story, you know, I was going to be Jacques Cousteau. That was my thing, right? So at 18, came back to the United States feeling more German than I did American. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was... I went to University of Washington. They had the only undergraduate oceanography degree in the country. And I was in the oceanography department. So hmm. that was my vision. I was going to, really my dream, is going to sound a little kooky, um, 
I wanted to be a Mara farmer, right? I wanted to actually have an abalone farm off the coast of California, and that was my 18-year-old dream. That's so cool, and, though. Uh, it is cool. It's and, very you know, uncommon. I took a job at 18. On, there was a bulletin on our oceanography bulletin board looking for commercial divers in Alaska. So a guy that was in my class said, oh, I did this last year. You make tons of money, and you should try out for it. And I'm like, okay. So I actually took a job with a company called Mullen Sea Products, and we went up to Cordova, Alaska. I got hired, 18. Mom, not too happy. Um, I can up, understand why. There's a reason you get paid well. It's probably life. Yeah, it was life threatening. Uh, <laughs> there were a few people that didn't make it home each year, but yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was it was harvesting um, herring eggs for uh, Japanese delicacy companies. Herring eggs. Herring eggs. We know sturgeon eggs. We know salmon eggs. Herring eggs. Her herring eggs. So, it really what you're paid for is the the herring come into various bays in the Prince William Sound and they spawn and they lay their eggs and their the the males and the females and they fertilize and the eggs adhere to kelp leaves and the type of kelp that they lay on matters in what you get paid for um, like ribbon kelp is one of the most sought after because it's thin and it's got a perfect crunchiness to it and flavor so you know the dream is you've got to look for these places they don't just lay their eggs right in front of you you're in open ocean and uh, you got to find these little places nuggets if you will just like mining and so you scout and you look around and it's below freezing so you're in dry suits and it's uh, it's a nasty job but I equate it to uh, in New York maybe in the fall um, they throw a bunch of $50 bills on the ground and it's drizzling and it's almost freezing and you're sitting there naked on your knees and the longer you can take it the more money you can make and that's almost what it was that's quite a visual right it was there. yeah it's crazy and it's it's uh, it's scary, it's nasty, it's hard on you. Um, a lot of rookies would go up and do it. And anyway, I quickly realized maybe this ocean thing is not really my dream. And I knew I wanted to have a wife and kids and I knew I was gonna be a family man. So um, started looking at alternatives. So, you know, you go speak with your counselors and a few things came up, you know, change and get your chemistry degree maybe. And, you know, you might apply to medical or dental school. So uh, our family dentist and uh, dentist I'd talk to, you know, they said, oh, I love my life. You know, I can scuba dive. I'm a doctor and I can take off whenever I want and I can do those things. So just literally that easily, I applied to dental school or changed to pre-dent and chemistry degree and ended up going to dental school. Just, you know, I thought, you know, once I told my parents candidly, you know, you're, there's no return from there because oh my gosh, you're going to be a doctor. And <laughs> now you're either going to disappoint everyone around you or you're going to stay the course. And I was definitely a stay the course and still kind of am kind of guy. And if you tell me I can't do something, pretty much better eat your words because I'm probably going to go there. So did the dental school thing. But this whole time, this whole food and wine thing was in the background. It was a thing I was sharing with my dad. Now it was more mature. Um, and uh, And that's, you know that point, there's a point in your life, you know, dentistry was great. I loved it. It taught me a way of thinking. It taught me a way to stay organized. It definitely taught me detail to, you know, I think, which is later a great advantage I have in winemaking because, you know, I think um, when you're young and you, if you were to go to, you know, study enology in school, your professor at 18, 19, 20 is all knowing. 
and what they teach you and how you learn to ferment at 18, 19, it's the Bible, right? And you're just not brave enough to have the cojones or however you want to put it to go out and try your own things. Um, so I feel blessed that, you know, my step into doing the wine thing came later. I had been a dentist. I had multiple degrees. I had put a few fillings in and had some situations working on patients that weren't so ideal. And I'd gotten A's in those classes and I failed. So you realize, ah, maybe not everything is cut and dry. And you're going to have to learn somewhere along the way to create your own path. And so stepping into wine, um, you know, although I cursed it at the time, thinking, oh my God, I have no luck at all and everything we did, and we can get into that, you know, getting this thing going, this winery was no easy path. I mean, I thought, oh my God, look at these winemakers, how cool. And great buddy of mine, who's my son's godfather, is Chris Benziger from Sonoma. How cool is that? And, uh, you know, we kind of hung out and really got to know each other riding mountain bikes across the state of Utah. And uh, just... He was the one that was the final push for me to kind of, you know, make the leap of faith from dentistry into being a winemaker. You know, art is commonly perceived as a blend, as a fusion of art and science. You clearly had a lot of scientific background that required that hard study and precision and, you know, the foundational pieces. The leap of faith has to be kind of a art piece that you, you were not familiar with. There was some artistry to what you did, um, but wine is so misunderstood for those reasons. They think either it's a very romantic, nebulous thing, or they think it's just a combination of um, chemistry and biology and know-how and, um, you know, the technology. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, isn't it? Very, very much. And I think, you know, Year to year, the scale slides or the pendulum swings. Um, you know what I think, you know, now I, it's funny, when I first started making wine, people come up and ask you, well, how long have you been doing this? And, you know, it's so embarrassing. You say, well, this is my second vintage. It means I've done it two times. And, oh, by the way, you should buy my wine. You know, now I say 21, 22, but still think about it. It's only 21 or 22 times. But over those times, you know, I've, I think I've succeeded at some great things. I've failed at a lot of things. Um, but each failure, you learn. And I think the goal is to eliminate those failures and to start to use what you've learned along the way. And for me, there's so much technology, I'd say, in the last 10 years that's come in to make it easier. Um, but I still would equate it. Here's the best analogy I've ever uh, come up with is sailing. Hmm. Um, you're still out there skimming the waves, the wind's in your face, you're, the sheets are out, you're capturing the wind to move that boat. But maybe now there's a computer that's kind of helping you, guide you a little bit. There, you know, you're still out in the sun, you're still bucking the waves, and you're still getting seasick. All the big stuff about sailing that you love is there. But now there's some things that help you a little bit. They help to, maybe you can tack just a little tighter. This computer teaches you. Ah, you've got it. You're visually right there, but maybe a quarter degree south by south. You know what I mean? Can tighten that sail a little bit more. So it's a mix of the two. There's there's new things there that allow you to, if you use them, maybe help you be a little better or not. There's a lot of purists that, by God, this is how I do it. And this is what the vineyard, quote unquote, is telling me. You know, I, I walk the vineyards every day and 
listen very carefully and they've never really spoken to me, but you know what I mean? It's like, I I think you, you have to interpret that yourself. You know, I think it's just, again, it's experience and and learning things, but you got to try things because mother nature is going to change every single year on you. There's never going to be the same situation twice, but on the bad years, maybe there's something you did and you learned or a tool that you had. So I equate it again to like, say doctors, you know, you really want a doctor that knows how to use a lot of different tools because every once in a while, it's not the common cold or just the broken forearm. Every once in a while, there's something nasty that comes down the pipeline and you want someone that maybe has seen it before, certainly knows where to look to fix that situation. And there's so many great things out there that we won't even have time to go into today that I feel sorry for people that are just sitting there going, yeah, this is the way we've done it for centuries because gosh, there's some wonderful stuff out there. And I don't use it all the time. I try it all the time. I don't use it all the time, but I try to stay up on what's going on. You know, there's so much to unpack in what you've just shared. Um, first of all, when you were talking, analogy leapt to mine inspired by yours, which is there's a lot of controversy about Boeing right now. And it's mostly centered around the fact that there's over-reliance on instruments. So it's that balance of human and technology when necessary, but you cannot just rely blindly because bad things happen. Um, and also to your point, people that are very traditionalist in their thinking, and particularly it attaches to the European model when it's generational farming and everything is done by hand. But then again, where does the most sought after and ubiquitous equipment come from? Where's the design? It's designed by French companies. Right. So they must be using it in their own country. So there's a lot of misunderstandings there that happen as a result of that not being a popular subject. We like to talk about, you know, the hands-off approach and everything happens by itself, but right. it really doesn't. Well, artistic is, let's face it, um, going the path of the artist is way more romantic than the scientist. and. I, you know, I, I don't want to ever make this sound like it's some chemically derived process because it mm-hmm. really isn't. For example, I did a, had the pleasure to get to do a dinner in Atlanta um, on an airplane that had been turned into a museum. Hmm. And they, some very cool things. They'd taken the floorboards and made them plexiglass. You could see the operations of this 747 that had been That's retired. So cool. And what I noticed is it's still run by wires that are pulled by levers. You think about it, right? So we don't yeah. really think this is, could be possible in this day and age, but it still has to be that way. I mean, if there's a electronic outage or something, so exactly what you said, that artist side, you still have to rely on your palate. Um, there are many companies that have come along to do wine by numbers, I won't mention names. And you know, they took some of the most popular, highly rated wines and they broke them down chemically to their Mm -hmm. individual components. Looked, you know, um, used algorithms to look for commonalities and overlapping of certain flavors and chemicals and where they're derived from. And they, you know, came up with formulas. Mm -hmm. And they would sell you those formulas. Um, I do not use those. I'm aware of them. Um, And, you know, I think that that has come and I won't say gone because a lot of people still use it, but again, it's a guideline. Um, you know, for us, ours has just been pretty much blood, sweat, and tears and learning along the way. I think there are things I do to improve more my farming than copycatting. So Mm -hmm. there's a difference there. Um, I think when you're talking about France and some of the things they brought to the table, 
a lot of it's very farm driven, mm -hmm. um, equipment to process better and uh, not really getting in the way, staying a little more purist on the winemaking side, but improving all of those other things that surround that. You know, for those of you that, you know, are kind of wanting a bit of a differ differentiator um, about, you know, the purchasing decisions, ultimately, it's like, we're not really talking about the perils or knocking the corporate wineries, which is, you know, by and large are the ones that practice what I call winemaking by committee. It's a different approach. When you're hands-on, when you're a small business, that's just how it's done. Right. You're not running your decisions by other people that are not necessarily involved in the practical sides. You, you partner up with your viticulturalist, with your, your system winemaker, your you know, enologist in European terms and such right. like that. That type of partnerships, of course, but it's not you know, accountants and you know, a big lab. <laughs> Bean counters along the way. You exactly. Know. I get together, you know, we're a pretty tight group out here, and whether you're a big winemaker, small winemaker for your projects, it's interesting when we, you know, start to break bread and drink a little bit, you know, stories get told, and some of the larger winemakers from some big facilities look at me and go, God, I don't know how you do it, and I'm like, I don't know how you do it, you know, you've got to bring in, you know, whatever it might be, a, you know, a thousand tons or whatever their deal is, 10,000 tons, and, you know, in their vision, they've got... 200 tanks to put together all these blends so they can have 30 or 40 that aren't so great mm -hmm. and still on the law of averages make pretty good wine for us every single tank almost is going into a bottle or mm -hmm. the blend of two or three so everything we do has to be kind of on the money but so it's good or bad you know is, is that one or two apple pies that grandma made better than Marie Callender's mass produce. I don't know either, right? Marie Callender certainly making more money than grandma, but is it better? And so that's always the analogy I use when I'm out selling wines is, you know, we still dimple our pie crust one fork at a time. And people have heard this from me for years, so it's nothing new. But um, nonetheless, that's kind of a good visual of, I think, who we are in our style of winemaking. I love the way that you speak in 3D, like I can picture it in my mind's eye, what you're describing, that's great. So let's go back for a second because I'm quite curious about how it all began in terms of the winemaking phase of your world. You come from a different profession. It had to have been a huge leap of faith, not only to go into a different vocation, but also to take full ownership of it. You are, in fact, you know, the beginning and the ending point. How did that come about? You know, we, uh, you know, my uh, then girlfriend, Susie, mm. uh, love of my life. Aww. We met in Stockton, where I was a dentist at the time, mm -hmm. and we had some very close friends of hers. Her roommate in at St. Mary's um, was dating uh, a guy named Oscar Renteria, so a very old farming <laughs> family here in Napa. So I our, he's great. Yeah, so everyone loves Oscar. Um, so our dating years, literally before we got married, were here in Napa. And that was where I fell in love with this place. So, you know, there was dabbling in home winemaking along the way. Um, you know, still was never thinking about giving up my dental practice. There was the idea of being a gentleman farmer. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, one weekend, I can tell you, we were up here visiting Oscar and Denise. We were hanging out with some friends. And it was up, probably up by Rutherford Barn Grill, right up, you know, by that old train station up there on one of the back streets and we're at this house and I could just picture it. There was a 
couple John Deere tractors sitting out in the vineyard. We're on this old late 1800s front porch of a home, drinking wines with no label on them, lighting up cigars, and you know we're young guys and sitting around and. Somebody said, we said, oh, God, we love it up here. And, and that group of six or seven people on the front porch said, why don't you guys move here? And Susan and I looked at each other, and it was like, kind of like a light went off, you know? It's like, so driving home the next day, we're like, what do you think? So literally the next day, I called a dental practice broker, because just like real estate people, they're people that sell dental practices. And this broker said, you're not going to believe this. In 20 years, there's not been a dental practice sell. However, there is one in escrow that fell out last week because of a gentleman that had a back injury and can no longer practice. And so I jumped right in and within literally within 24, 48 hours, I was selling my practice and we were moving to Napa. Um, recently engaged, just like we just up and changed our life overnight. And uh, you know, and then the struggles got way harder after that. But it mm -hmm. was really the renterias and the vision of hanging out on a vineyard and thinking about, I want my kids to grow up on mini bikes riding through the vineyards. Because I grew up in Saratoga, part of my life mm -hmm. before Germany was over in the Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. Saratoga back then was, you know, all apricot orchards and mini bikes and fun stuff like that. So I had a little bit of the taste of that. In Germany, same thing. We lived in the country. Mm. I wanted a little country in my kids' lives. And you know, you know, we talked about it too. It's, well, now we've talked about it. Back then, it wasn't so deep. But you think about it on this little property that we're on right now. There is farming. There's hard work. Um, there is a tasting room. There's retail. There's manufacturing. There's business. So it, it, there's all layers, you know, that you could ever think of. Um, you've got IT. We're working on computers. We're you know, we're wireless, we're repairing tractors. I mean, almost any direction a child could want to go, they're gonna get a taste of it here. So that was sort of a little bit the driving factor for us. So we wanted to mostly just be gentlemen farmers, maybe make 200 cases of wine, stay a dentist. You know, that was really the focus at the very beginning. And then you kind of heard me say earlier, once I get a bug, I'm in. <laughs> You're all in. I'm all in. So <laughs> I just instantly fell in love with this property, fell in love with everything grapes and everything wine. And I started taking classes at Davis, started going back to taking night classes at Davis, started hearing uh, rumors that wineries were getting harder and harder to get. <laughs> and here we are 20 some odd years later, and they're still saying that. And they are, though, I will say that. But, uh, you know, it's just a lot of things were just pushing that direction. And then um, after making my first few wines and kind of more on a more commercial basis than homemade, um, I was in. And that was it. There was no turning back. So we eventually sold everything. You know, Susie, I, you know, I know we're talking more about me, but I do have to say, you know, without her along the way, we would have never got here. Behind every great man and uh, every great winemaker, oh, every yeah. great everything. That and has she will to be tell you that lady. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't let me forget it, but as right, I shouldn't because along the way, it's been fortunate her insurance career mm -hmm. has. We parallel each other when our high. We don't parallel each other. We parallel each other, but fortunately, insurance has its highs. A lot of times when the wine's been low. We've been able to kind of, you know, when they have bad years, we've, the wine businesses, it's just been interesting how they've been sort of 
opposite of one another. Mm-hmm. And without that, I'm not sure we would have made it through because this has been a very, very uh, um, financially straining, you know, career. It's not easy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for those that think this is all romance and butterflies and unicorns, there's some harsh reality. Oh, it's a lot of hard work, which I don't think you can actually ascertain until you're right in the middle of it and then it's too late to back out and that's really it yeah you you it's kind of like walking the plank you know you're out so far on the edge there's no walking back in you're going to dive in no matter what's there and you know you know if you really think about it and i don't know if this is the direction we're supposed to be going in this meeting today but you know you, no one told me at the time that oh by the way steve um here's how it works you know you're going to buy a piece of property and it's going to take you three to six years, let's say four or five years to get your grapes in and get through the process. Then, um, I mean, a year or two to put them in, three to five, four or five years to have them grow. So you're, let's say five to six years and you have your first fruit. Well, no one tells you the first fruit's really usually not that good. So, um, and you know, if you do put it in a bottle, they're probably not gonna like it. So a lot of times you drop the first crop or you make very little and you don't really market it. So now say six years in, you do make your wine. Well, guess what? Ours is all Cabernet, so it sits in a barrel for two years. So guess what? That year gets picked and you grow the next year and it's sitting in a barrel. So you buy all these barrels that sit there for two years, but in the meantime, you make another year and you buy another set of barrels and it sits there. And just about the time you're gonna make the third year, you now need to start bottling the first year. So now you get all these layers going. And the whole time you're paying your mortgage, you're paying for farming. And now, so you really need to own probably four to six years of inventory at any one time. And that part is what nobody really tells you. And yeah, you just, you know, you bootstrap, you know, that old term of like, you know, it's sink or swim. And when you've got young kids and a wife that you've, you just left a dental practice and you know everyone's looking at you like what an idiot you moron you know what did you do well you're not gonna fail <laughs> there's that predictability to dental practice and for that matter a lot of other professions with the winemaking world you really are at a mercy i mean talk about labor of patience right and on top of it you get <clears throat> a shot once a year i mean honestly if you think about it in the context of a lifetime and certainly a professional piece of it how many harvests does an average winemaker that got into it way early even yeah. gets to have. Some people go to Australia and such to and double incre- it up. Yeah. Exactly. But other than that, you get tested. Oh. And your entire livelihood is hinging on what, two weeks? Yeah. So, you know, it's, I loved it because Anthony Bell is a great mentor of mine and helped me into this career. There's been a few guys along the way, but Anthony was definitely one of the guys that I've admired. And, you know, I remember him saying in a little documentary thing, decanted on it in the film, and I watched it, it as like, he said, you know, here I'm, you know, one of the experts and I've only done this 41 times. And I'm like thinking, isn't that funny, right? The smartest, most knowledgeable winemakers in the world really have only done it 30, 40 times. And uh, so you really have to learn. I mean, not that we're not doing one more than one tank. So you're fermenting a lot of stuff mm-hmm. over those 40, but it's only 40 seasons that you have, maybe 50 that you have an experience with. So. Absolutely. And meanwhile, you hone your own skill set and also your winemaking philosophy. It sort of evolves organically from everything you pick up. 
along the way. How did yours evolve? I know you have a really important um, slogan almost, right? Like a tagline that... Right, Drink American. Drink American. And that must have come about as a result of, in confluence of your experience. It wasn't just arbitrary. Tell us about that. Oh, well, glad you asked, actually. I don't think too many people ask that. Um, you know, having lived in Europe and being brought up more with a European palate, candidly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, when in Napa, when in Rome, now I'm here and I'm making California wines. And, you know, 20, you know, we bought this property 26 years ago. Um, you know, California was just coming at, kind of in and out of its cult phase and it was new, the new kid on the block. And, you know, it was still like, and it still is to this day, you know, I'll just say France versus America. And, you know, and I can't tell you the number of times I, well, you know, it's a great blend, but it's no Bordeaux. And, you know, you kind of got so sick of hearing these things like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of like saying I'm flipping burgers and you just keep wanting to go to Chinese food. It's not who we are. We're different. And I wanted people to realize that, you know, we are our own entity here. We're very unique in our own right. And we, why do we have to compare, you know, seven days in a week, 365 days a year, there's plenty of room for all of us. Um, but that comparison thing has been there for so long. And, and, you know, and I know there's a great lure to the great chateaus of the world and, and they are romantic and beautiful and full respect for everything they do. But, you know, we're kind of, the wild west out here you know we're kind of some cowboys and you know it's like i don't know it's gonna sound crazy maybe this shouldn't even be in here it's like calling lewis and clark pussies you know those guys walked across this whole continent and they're badasses and i think there's a lot of guys out here that have really pushed the envelope to advance flavors mm-hmm. when the world has been telling us no you shouldn't do that right well so you can make a four thousand horsepower engine out here but you shouldn't do that because that's not the way it's done. Well, mm-hmm. how do we know? I mean, who who's the person telling us what good is? You know, I think your palate for yourself has to decide that. And I think we should learn along the way from all these great centuries before us and some fantastic people. But again, those are just little guidelines. And sort of like me in winemaking and my style, I've had the fortune of working in a lot of places before this place was built. At the time, again, thought it was a curse. Why can't I get built? Why is the county holding me back? Why am I having all these problems? Why don't we have money? But you know, those were all actual great things in my resume because I had to make wine over at Laird and the Custom Crush area. And guess what? In that winemaking room were some amazing names and I Mm. saw these people make their wine. It had nothing to do with what I was learning at Davis at all. And so you're like, okay, you know, that's how they're doing this really. So sometimes adversity can be some of the best things that happen to you in life. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.